Hello, and welcome to Sounds Heal Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Brown, and thank you so much for joining me as we continue to explore the fields of sound healing, sound therapy, and generally the use of sound for health and wellness. Today, we are connected with, from the Dome Center in Spain, Nestor Kornblum, where he and his wife, Michelle, have been teaching sound therapy training for 25 years, one of the leading programs, and they have students worldwide. Nestor's specialty is overtone singing, and I think that he gives one of the best explanations and demonstrations to what overtone singing is, as well as generally the harmonic series, harmonic ratios, Really, he explains it in an understandable way. And of course, in sound therapy, sound healing, we hear about harmonics and these overtones all the time. So a really nice discussion. We also talk quite a bit about the voice, the healing qualities of the voice, but also um, what they teach energy management as well at the school. And what does that mean to manage your energy? A really great discussion with Nestor, and I hope you enjoy our conversation, as well as his very enthusiastic, passionate energy. This podcast is sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa, located in Sarasota, Florida. You can go visit them in person and see that they have the country's largest showroom of quartz crystal singing bowls and so many other vibrational tools. They have a luxury spa. You can also visit them online at theohmshop.com. And I'm very lucky to be teaching several sound healing workshops there this year. Wonderful to work with them. Just very high vibe people and venue. Thank you so much to the Ohm Shop for your sponsorship. And please enjoy this podcast with Nestor Kornblum. I would recommend if you can to tune in on YouTube. It might be beneficial to actually see the video of him Uh, demonstrating some of these techniques. That's at the Sounds Heal Studio YouTube channel. Please enjoy this podcast. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me, Nestor. And I would like to start with your background. I know that you've been, your specialty is really overtone singing and harmonic work and that you and your wife have been teaching sound therapy for 25 years now. But it would be really fun to set the stage for your background and look back to uh, before all that, all that you've been doing. Just let a little bit know, let us know a little bit about yourself and um, okay. who you are. Well, I think um, firstly, thanks for inviting me, Natalie. It's, an, it's a pleasure to be here um, all the way from Spain. Um, to talk about my background, I think we'll just hit home the fact that one doesn't need to have a musical background to do what I've been doing for the last 25 years. Um, I was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa, um, during the apartheid regime. And for those of you who are from the new generation who may not know about apartheid, that was the institutionalized racist um, South Africa in which I was brought up. And uh, while I come from a very musical family, I am, um, I think my, my ego or my fear of failure or my competitive nature just um, 
led me to decide, oh, well, you know, my cousins and, and everybody so gifted and talented at such an early age. My, my first cousins, uh, my uncle taught them to play guitar and piano when they were four or five years old with, with colored keys on the piano and stuff like that. And I thought, well, these guys have got such a head start, you know, I'll, I'll do something else. But, but I was always attracted to sound and music, became a real jazz fan at, a, at an extremely early age, etc. But then um, went to university and studied law, <laughs> law and English literature, a Bachelor of Arts, LLB hybrid degree. And um, it was during that period that I discovered I had a British passport and I was out of South Africa before you could say Jack Rabbit, I was off to London to seek my fortune <laughs> and to find out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, having put myself through school, the last years of school and university by working in restaurants, uh, when I was in London, I decided, well, the only way to survive in London, which is an extremely expensive city, um, an extremely expensive accommodation, travel, everything, I was going to work in the restaurant business because if you earn tips, you know, it was, it was a way to get by. And so I, um, because of my background in Johannesburg at seafood restaurants, I decided I'm going to find the most exclusive seafood restaurant in London. And that's what I did. And I became a specialist oyster shucker, oyster opener, amongst other things. I worked in a very, very prestigious family run um, seafood business where we served film stars, rock stars, and the aristocracy. So um, uh, I can do a, an awful lot of, of famous name, name dropping, <laughs> people that I've served or who sat at the oyster bar and you know, chatted, actors, etc. cetera. And um, a few years later, my father and his uh, family, his new family, he remarried, they joined us in London, uh, well, in the south, south of London, and um, he then, um, after that um, relationship ended, he, he married a woman who had a house in Spain and said to me, well, while you're discovering what you want to do with your life, at least do it somewhere sunny and with beautiful weather. So come and join us in Spain and you can be general handyman, dog's body, whatever, until you decide what it is you want to do. So I came to Spain and this is where I met, uh, after a few months, I met Michelle. And she was a rocker, a rock and roller. She had her own uh, folky, jazzy blues band. And she's a prolific song, singer songwriter. Um, and I, I felt very left out. And um, every time I tried to sing, uh, my own self-awareness and embarrassment shut me down. And, and, and uh, it's very interesting because now this is one of the main focuses of our, of our work. Uh, before we can start with sound therapy, one has to first free the voice, which is, you know, vital. <laughs> so interestingly, when she was pregnant with our daughter, uh, she... Uh, decided that she wanted to do something more therapeutic with her voice rather than singing for, you know, for drunk and stoned audiences at one, two, three o'clock in the morning, which is how Spain works, you know, and concerts don't start in, in, in nightclubs and stuff until 
midnight, one in the morning and go through till five. And it's really a terribly draining life and a thankless task, singing your heart out for people who are not really paying attention. So she found a course in the United Kingdom and she flew off and did a 10 day training with another very well known um, pioneer sound therapist. Um, and she came back 10 days later and said, oh, you know, Nestor, listen to what I can do. And she did some overtone singing and I heard these little flute like a whistly tones above her voice. And in that moment, it was like uh, an arrow in my heart. In that moment, it felt like coming home, not just listening to her, but when I tried to do it myself and had immediate success with this half technique she taught me. She didn't really understand it herself because this lady, famous as she is, is not really noted for being a great teacher of overtone singing in terms of transmitting the, the details of the technique. So I had no clues or nothing to go on except this general mouth movement. But the tones made me feel so good, so aligned, so connected to everything. And in that moment, I thought, wow, this is what I'm here to do. It was, it was, an inner knowing, it was not a mental conclusion that, that came into my head. It was just, wow, this is my purpose. This is my path. It was that powerful. So that's really how I came into this. And, you know, I was um, just going on 30 years old when I began. Um, and that was when I kicked myself and thought, wow, you know, you could have started with music five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but no regrets. Um, I was led through uh, resonance, sympathetic resonance to meet Michelle. I was uh, attracted into her life. She was attracted into mine for this purpose. I have no doubt that we are both living our true purpose. And um, it was a bit rocky there for a while, I have to tell you, Natalie, because um, she, in the beginning, and she, we laugh about this now, right? we do laugh about this, and she tells the story in an extremely funny way because she's also a natural comedian. <laughs> but it turns out she resented me uh, intruding on her area, especially as she just entered it. She'd just taken the first steps on her path. <laughs> um, and so I had, to sac uh, I had to practice overtone singing in secret because otherwise she got upset. And um, it was only after several months of practicing every time I took the car out. I, in fact, I used to manufacture excuses to go to the shops or to take a drive so that I could practice and practice. And it was only several months later when I started to be able to create uh, little melodies with the overtones and sound quite good and, and start attracting attention and compliments from our friends that finally she acknowledged that that uh, she you know that I shouldn't really have to go off and find a real job which is something she had sent said to me once you know you, you go find a real job I'm the sound therapist in the family and so we soon realized that actually the um, 
purpose was for us to work together. And this is what we began doing. And, and it started to work very well because, um, well, because we were a husband and wife team and we were able to, you know, I'm very yang and, and male and she's very yin, although she's very powerful um, goddess, shamaness. <laughs> and so we developed a way of working together which uh, combines our two styles of working um, and our, our, our two different methodologies and our, two er and our areas of expertise. So that is what has brought us really to, to the present time. Yeah, I think a lot of people in the sound therapy field have heard of harmonics or overtones, whether they're using bowls or other instruments, um, but maybe... Mm don't necessarily conceptually understand it because it's not often taught, even to musicians, you know, conservatory musicians, it's not often taught, you know, what, what is conceptually harmonic. So maybe before we get to the healing power uh, of that, mm -hmm. if you could just explain a little bit in a kind of layman's terms, what, what are we talking about when it comes to overtone or harmonic work? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Harmonics, quite simply, are defined as whole number multiples of a fundamental tone or frequency. So very simply, if you sing a tone or play a tone on an instrument of, let's take an easy number, 100 hertz or cycles per second, then the harmonics will be adding each time those hundred hertz to itself. So, so your next, your first, your uh, second harmonic, if the fundamental tone that you're singing of a hundred hertz is your fundamental or first harmonic, then your second harmonic will be 200 hertz. And your third harmonic will be 300 hertz, 400, 500, 600, 700. So those are, or you, you have the whole number multiple of the fundamental pitch. Um, the, the most interesting thing is that Pythagoras actually discovered this 2,600 years ago. Uh, the, 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 not what overtones were, but the arithmetic ratios of them by dividing the string of his monochord, which was an ancient Greek uh, instrument. No, well, it's attributed to the Greeks, but actually the Egyptians invented it not as a musical instrument, but as a single string on a box that could be used for measuring harmonious ratios and proportions so that they could construct their temples, pyramids, etc., according to harmonic ratios. And of course, intrinsic to the word harmonic is harmony. What's more, Pythagoras discovered that these harmonics were not separate tones that occurred somewhere else as a repeater of the fundamental, but they all exist or coexist simultaneously within the fundamental. So when the human ear hears a tone, just a simple hum or a frequency of any kind, then that tone contains within it, like a rope contains thousands of little hairs, within it, but it looks like a single entity from a distance. It looks like a, 
a single unit a rope like from a, a great distance it looks like a piece of string but as you get closer and closer you see it's made up of multiple little fibers well the human voice and in fact the voice of most acoustic instruments is exactly the same it contains within it all the possible whole number multiples of itself forever as pythagoras discovered when you divide a string it's like how long can you continue dividing the string you know a half a third a quarter a fifth a sixth and as you get closer and closer to the end of that piece of string you can't play it anymore it's too small to pluck but theoretically you can continue dividing that string forever that means inside any single tone that sounds like a single note to the human ear you actually have all the multiples of that note that ascend upward like a, a stairway to heaven literally and so within a single sound and here i can probably sing some overtones or the scale for you just turning on my original sound flute-like tones are the overtones or the harmonics that the voice is capable of um, amplifying. Well, actually, it's not the voice. The voice does what it's always meant to do. The sounds are actually amplified in the mouth cavity using specific techniques. So when I sing overtones or when anybody sings overtones, they are not creating something new. They're simply creating the space for what is already there to be distinctly heard as a separate pure frequency above the voice, which is a multiple frequency or complex frequency. So I hope that uh, explains <laughs> adequately enough what, what the harmonics actually are. It does, it really helps. So really you're, you're highlighting the tones that are already there, right? And one question um, about that actually too, but I've, I've heard of both uh, doing that with, I guess you would call it um, tongue overtones or throat uh, singing. <laughs> yeah. Are, are you doing both or, or is there really a difference between those two styles of doing um, that? Well, what there are really is um, modern Western overtone singing and traditional Central Asian overtone singing, which comes from Mongolia, Tuva, Alt, you know, Altai, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Boshkorstan, you know, there's about 12 of those Stan countries in Central Asia, and all of them have a certain type of throat singing. In their language, they call it, uh, well, Humi, Humi, in Mongolian or Hermei in Tuvinian, which means pharynx. 
So they create a lot of the sounds down in the throat and they have a very guttural language. Their normal speaking is a bit like someone who's, you know, who's been smoking black tobacco for 20 years. And they, so it's a little bit like a, a guttural language. And when they, hey, uh, when they sing, the overtones are automatically amplified just in their normal way of intoning or singing. So they probably discovered this hundreds of years ago in, an, in a natural way because of their uh, native tongue. In the West, people have only ever discovered overtone singing by accident, the way people discover how to whistle. Uh, the earliest recording of overtone singing in the Western world was recorded on a vinyl record in 1929, some, you know, more than 35 years before overtone singing was discovered in the West. And in the West, because it's not really traditional to us to create this enormous constriction in the throat area, it takes an enormous amount of pressure and effort to do good throat singing. Um, not only that, throat singing is done usually with a, with a high fundamental tone. It's very powerful because these people were doing it in the open air with the winds on the steppes. And uh, it's very, very difficult to be heard. Also, they mostly do it on horseback um, as they are nomads. And so it needs to carry great distances. As you can imagine, this is not appropriate for a sound healing session or uh, where you want the tones to be gentle, caressing and meditative. And, and, and that is the style that, that I developed um, on my own from that one little technique that I got off Michelle when she came back from, from London all those years ago. And uh, in those days, um, we're talking 1994, 95. Um, in those days, there was almost nothing uh, about overtone singing or even throat singing. There were very few recordings. There was, there was only David Hikes and his harmonic choir in, in New York who did very, very basic, simple overtone singing. And there was the great master uh, Michael Vetter in Germany who, um, who had learned overtones through the, the avant-garde composer Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. And he developed a beautiful style of singing. And we do it mainly in the mouth cavity. Um, so obviously there's only, uh, we all have the same equipment. So, so Western overtone singing resembles very closely uh, Tuvinian or Mongolian throat singing, but without the extreme constriction that is necessary to get the, the, the glottal stops and the locks, the hey, that they, that they always do. Um, it's also less dangerous to the singer because the uh, um, Asian or Central Asian throat singing actually puts enormous pressure on, on the blood vessels on the body. And so it's not very therapeutic as in itself. Also, they use it for folkloric singing. They do not use the full range of, of harmonics. They only use the harmonics between number six and 12, and they create a pentatonic scale which is very lovely, and they, they leave out the slightly the more tension-causing intervals, 
like the minor seventh and, and work with more the major intervals. Um, whereas uh, in sound healing, I use all the harmonics from four all the way up to 16, 17, 18, 20 even, depending on um, how low I sing. Um, so yeah, tongue harmonics are the high whistling flute-like ones and throat harmonics can be done with just a, a slight glottal squeeze. Or with the tongue. And this is a far cry from the throat singing which I can do and in, in fact I, I did a weekend workshop many years ago with Tserendava one of the great Mongolian throat singers so yeah there, there are there are differences yeah yeah that's a great uh, description of that and one other thing that might be important to point out uh, before we get to more of the healing qualities is that the harmonics and the voice um and perhaps a flute, it may be different than what people are understanding about harmonics or overtones within a Himalayan bowl, right? There's different uh, aspects or different uh, ratios or fundamentals that are coming out in the, in the voice, yeah, well, right? <clears throat> the, the, the voice um, works like a string. It creates what we call predictable overtones. It conforms to the fundamental universal law of harmonics, which is uh, half the string, which is the octave, uh, a third of the string, which is the perfect fifth, um, you know, a quarter of the string, which is then the next octave, a fifth of the string, which is a major third, etc. So the, the overtone scale goes in jumps, goes in it like it jumps a whole octave, and there's only one tone in the first octave and then two little tones in the next octave and then four tones in the next octave and eight tones in the next octave, etc. So each octave as you ascend has double the number of, of notes in it until you get microtones. Um, however, all rounded and curved objects like Himalayan bowls, gongs, and Native American drums, which also have overtones. If you bang a drum and wait for that boo-woo-woo-woo, that after effect, well, that is an overtone, which is actually higher than the low bass of the drum. Many people don't realize what they're listening to is actually a harmonic. But these harmonics cannot be predicted. They are called unpredictable harmonics or unpredictable overtones, and they can only attempt to conform to the universal law, but their actual physical shape prevents them from doing so. And uh, so what this means that, is that all the metallic uh, handmade uh, singing bowls have each one their own totally unique set of harmonics or overtones. Each one is different. You can try out hundreds of bowls, and I know this for a fact because 
I've been to Kathmandu and been to all the shops and, you know, to stock our, our store. And um, uh, really, there are very, it's so difficult to find two bowls that are the same because they might have the same fundamental tone, but the harmonics will be different. Uh, whereas the crystal bowls, which are machine made, all to the same measurement and size, uh, well, they may have, they may not conform to the harmonic scale as such, but if you have two of exactly the same size and thickness and shape, they will have the same harmonics. And that, you know, they will have exactly the same harmonics. Um, so that is how it works. Also, the same works for wind instruments. If you have a wind instrument that has the same diameter throughout its length, it, when you blow it like an overtone flute, it uh, will have a predictable overtone scale. But if it goes from narrow to wide, like a didgeridoo, for example, then again, each didgeridoo, unless it's made from a piece of, of PVC pipe that has been cut, uh, each didgeridoo will again have its own very unique overtone scale because the inside of the didgeridoo will be different. The whole shape of each didgeridoo is unique. Okay, so. Yeah, yeah. do you think, uh, you know, because what's the best way to say this? There is a lot of frequencyism in uh, sound therapy, sound healing, you know, the, the chakra <laughs> frequencies and the, the love frequency is, in your opinion, would that be um, what makes the voice so healing is that it, it contains <laughs> the natural frequencies and ratios within it already? Uh, yes, definitely. That is um, one of the primary reasons why the voice is the most healing tone. But if we just give it a little bit of logical thought, the whole human being, the human body, the human ears, the auditory nerve and everything is exquisitely tuned to the human voice. So our ears, which are the very first uh, um, sense to develop at um, 16 to 18, 18 weeks of pregnancy or so, four and a half months roughly, the fetus can already hear. So the first thing it hears is its mother's voice uh, transmitted beautifully through the amniotic fluid uh, in the womb and through the entire surface of the skin of that fetus. But also the fetus begins to hear uh, audible sounds. And so it's not surprising that we are already before birth completely tuned to the frequencies of the human voice. Um, and of course, the, the ears belong to the throat chakra. The voice and the ears are exquisitely in intertwined because, you know, as Dr. Alfred Tomatis, the famous Dr. Tomatis said, you cannot reproduce a sound that you haven't first heard. Uh, well, that's not strictly true because if a huge rock falls on your toe, you might make a sound that's never been <laughs> heard anywhere, <laughs> a unique sound. but. Um, but uh, humor aside, it, it, um, the human voice is the most powerful tool for that reason, for the overtones, but also because it is a direct transmitter of the intention of the person who is doing the singing. And of course, Michelle's 
book, which is all about voice, you know, is more oriented to, towards that type of work. And she can give you a lot more information um, specifically about that. But really it is that when um, intention is a huge part, at least 50% of any kind of healing process or modality. And, um, and we are able to channel our intention through our voice. And this is obvious if you hear the tone of someone's voice when, when they're emotionally activated, whether it's anger or sadness or whatever, you can literally detect that in the tone of the voice. So the voice reacts uh, to our emotions. And um, for that reason, uh, we train our therapists in various methods to obtain a, a really neutral objective state uh, before they begin any, any healing session. So yeah, there are various reasons why the voice is, is the most powerful uh, healing tool of all. Yeah, and um, a lot of people might wanna have, you know, maybe can't hear the overtones initially, um, in particular instruments, they have a hard time picking it out, but then all of a sudden when you do hear them, um, they, they really do do grab you. Um, maybe you can mention a couple things to get more sensitive to overtones, but also um, if you don't mind uh, speaking a little bit about, I don't know if it's everybody's experience, but when I hear overtones, there's a real trance quality that happens. Uh, you know, it, it seems to send you to another place. I'm just curious your thoughts on on why that might be. Okay, um, well, when one sings overtones, one is literally, and uh, yeah, this is Nestor quoting Nestor here. Um, when you sing overtones or harmonics, you are singing the mathematics of creation. Um, because while um, overtones are in all vibrating, things. And as we know, the whole universe is in constant vibration. Every particle, every bit of matter, every bit of theoretical energy um, that has mass is vibrating. It's oscillating. Therefore, it's creating a pulse, a beat that creates uh, a frequency. And therefore, it has overtones within it unless it generates a pure sine wave. Therefore, uh, then it has no overtones. And, and there are very few things that have no overtones. They all, everything has overtones to begin with, but some things are created to eliminate their overtones like a tuning fork. See, that tuning forks were invented to tune instruments. So the musician needed a very pure tone without the interference and the muddiness that all the overtones can sometimes bring. It's like, huh, what was that tone? Because of course they didn't have electronic tuners back way back then in the 17th century. And so um, uh, one had to tune instruments by ear. Um, so yeah, now I'm taking myself away from the original subject. Um, yeah, clue me back in Natalie there. Yeah, well, I, that's probably because I asked you two questions. I kind of uh, asked you like, how, what, how do we listen <laughs> for overtones, but also why does it kind of send us into um, these altered right. states? Yeah. Okay, so I was on the altered states thing 
first, and then I'll get to the listening of the overtones. Um, so the altered state occurs because when we hear someone intentionally creating overtones or creating a melody with the overtones, um, it brings us back into coherence. It's like uh, pushing the reset button or the uh, restore factory default button. So it brings us back into tune. And when that happens, things shift and we need to go inwards. We need to focus inwards. Um, but also it provokes automatically um, through entrainment or, or sympathetic resonance, it brings the brainwaves down from active beta when you're awake to alpha or even theta brainwave frequencies. This is just an automatic meditative state that the overtone singing produces. Uh, it doesn't always do that. If you're singing folkloric melodies to the rhythm of a galloping horse in Mongolia, it's not going to, to do the meditative thing. But if we're talking about modern Western overtone singing, then I think most people who employ it, uh, especially from the healing tradition, I'm not talking about the pure musicians here who use overtone singing only as a musical tool, but those who are therapists and are aware um, that overtone singing is far more than just a musical tool or vocal acrobatics. So that, that is one of the main um, effects of overtone singing, creates a deep meditative trance-like state. And in that state, um, changes can occur. We can reset, we can reprogram, we can deprogram and reprogram ourselves. And it's, it's very much like uh, neuro-linguistic programming, in fact, uh, you know, learning to sing overtones for yourself or even just hearing them. Um, so you retrain all sorts of things, DNA memory, muscle memory. You connect to the morphogenetic web or Akashic records, as some people call them. Uh, really, it connects you deeply to the earth and to the cosmos, and you feel floaty and suspended between those two primal or primary forces. As far as listening to overtones is concerned, we haven't been trained in our culture to detect overtones. It's like we've been trained to hear only the gross, the lowest uh, common denominator. So, so if I pluck a string, a deep, you know, brass wound, thick string, if I pluck it, most people will just listen to that low vibrating sound. They will not pay attention to the other secondary tones that are floating there above that string and they are there. So the trick is to kind of reorient your ears upwards into the air above the source of the sound and not listen at the instrument. Uh, another way to, and so just listen to a plucked string, uh, a tampura, is an instrument which is beautiful for learning to listen to overtones because the, the, uh, they slide a little piece of cotton under the bridge of the tampura so it buzzes. And the more it buzzes, the louder the overtones are. 
Another thing to do is to strike a Tibetan singing bowl, not to make it sing so much, but to strike it with a, um, a mallet with a round, firm, but soft ball on the end. And as you strike it, you will hear the low resonant tone, but you will also hear much higher ringing tones. Some of, one of, or two of those ringing tones might be the collision of the beater with the metal. But the ones that persist after a few seconds, those are actual overtones. And so we need to retune the ear. And this happens with my students when I teach overtone singing. Many people, they get it immediately. They get it within an hour or two of learning the technique, but they can't hear themselves for another 24 hours or 48 hours. Why? Because we listen to our own voice resonating in our cranium, in our head. In fact, the, the means by which we hear our own voice is called through bone conduction. Just like the first time you ever hear your voice recorded, I think that's a pivotal moment in everyone's life. Uh, can you remember, Natalie, the first time you heard your recorded voice and you thought, wow, is that what I sound like? You know? And because I remember that moment, it was, you know, way back in the day of the of old cassettes, cassette recorders. But the first time I heard my voice on a, on, on a phone message machine, I was horrified. I sounded just like my father and my brother. <laughs> um, so, but when you learn to sing overtones, you have to realize that your fundamental voice is resonating so strongly in your head and ears that it wipes out, it, it masks the more subtle overtones of a beginner. An experienced overtone singer is able to make the harmonic much louder so that anybody can't, you know, cannot mistake it. But a, a beginner overtone singer, their overtones will be softer to start with than the drone of the voice, the ha, the fundamental tone you have to project to be able to sing harmonics. And so it takes, uh, what you have to do is let the sound bounce off your hand and back into your ear. And you have to realize, well, my, the low voice is sounding in your head, but the overtone comes out the mouth and comes back in from the outside. So it's, it's, it's literally uh, where you aim your sense of hearing. Yeah. And once you begin to hear them, well, then you start hearing them in everything. The hand dryer in the washroom, well, it has this motor and you can hear this high-pitched whine. And then a motorbike passing by on a distant street. You'll, you start to hear the overtones in everything and you realize that you've been hearing them all your life. But the human brain is designed for survival. The reptilian brain, the basic human brain where sound is attached, is trained for survival. And therefore the brain actively eliminates or suppresses all sound that is not considered important or a threat to survival. So um, what happens is all that other flack, the brain filters 
pulls it out and focuses on the fundamental tones so that we don't get too much information and we're not bombarded by too many sounds. But that means that we stop listening to harmonics at quite an early age and we have to retrain the ear to perceive them. That's a wonderful description. Thank you for, for adding that last part in. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. You know, it makes sense. <laughs> um, you know, what's a, a great way for someone to start on their own experimenting with, with this type of singing, but also maybe mention some of the, the trainings that you're doing as well? Um, look, it, it's, it's great if you discover overtone singing on your own. However, the problem there, and I can say this from a, a self, as a self-taught overtone singer, that you can also learn errors, mistakes, well, not mistakes, but ways of positioning that don't improve your range or potential. So it's great if you want to learn overtone singing. I highly recommend that you do start with a course, and I'm giving online courses regularly, every six weeks or so, a course over, over three evenings of two hours each. So I teach uh, the, the, the theory, the background, a little bit about the therapeutic applications, and then the techniques. And then we go deeper, and by the third weekend, everybody has learned both the, uh, the, the throat, the glottal overtones, and the mouth-tongue overtones. Uh, you can anyone can work with this at home simply by singing the or and ah vowel sounds and all the places in between using a kind of a nasal tone. So, those are the easiest uh, to learn and only takes a, a while. It takes much longer to become proficient, to become adept and control the overtones and, and select which one you're going to sing next and make a melody. Those things take time because you have to train muscle memory. So, But I do strongly advise people, come to a workshop. It's well worth it. And I can save you at least a year of suffering <laughs> because it took me about a year to become proficient in a world where the internet was just being born and, and there was no information out there, no useful about the actual mechanics of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, keep your, keep your eyes open. And I, I'm sure, Natalie, you'll, you'll share maybe my details later. Um, but, yeah, I, I highly recommend that you find yourself a good teacher, being a good teacher doesn't mean being a good overtone singer because many great overtone singers are not also good teachers. They are two different skill sets. And so transmitting this information in an understandable, comprehensible way, that is a, that is a skill which, um, which I do have. And so I'm able to, to explain in a, in a direct transmission way through sympathetic resonance with my students, but I'm also able to explain in the intellectual academic way, the more mental way, so that I satisfy, you know, all uh, sectors in a given group of people. 
and I make sure that everyone gets it. Yes, you, you demonstrate that skill very well. It's really appreciated. Um, you know, one other uh, area that you all train in that might be important to mention is energy management, which is so important in this ho holistic work. Would you just mention a little bit about what that is and, and perhaps how you include that in your trainings? <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> I've been racking my brains for a long time to come up with an adequate way of describing what we mean by energy management, because it's not immediately obvious to, to everybody. Managing your energy. Well, it's a combination of visualization, mindfulness, um, but with a, a specific set of mental techniques. Um, I don't, you know, for, for those of you who are as old as I am, you might remember Jose Silva and the Silva method, or the, which, which was called Back in the 80s, it was called the silver mind control method, literally. Um, when his daughter, Laura, took over, um, she changed it just to the silver method. But it was a set of 20 mental techniques, like creating a laboratory in the center of your head and a mental screen and things like that, which with practice, they become practical, useful tools that actually take on a almost a physical dimension because you practice them so often. And so what we mean by energy management is a specific um, technique, set of visualizations through um, running or flowing the earth energy up through the channels through your body and bringing down the cosmic energy and also running that through the cosmic channels in your body. In this way, you become completely connected to the earth and to the cosmos. We then use other visualizations for mounting a protection and creating a safe space, a safe container. Uh, during therapy sessions, we also use that safe container with the client inside it. Sound therapy is extremely powerful and for those people, and I'm not being airy-fairy here, for those people that believe in entities or astral beings, well, working with sound, sound and sacred sound and ceremony attracts a lot of curiosity on the astral planes. And you don't want any of these uh, potential parasites to attach to your energy because they can result in facial tics and emotional stuff and you know people can have energy parasites so it's very vitally important to create a safe container when working with sound um, so and all of this all of these skills are our um, energy management i think uh, the most famous um, uh, person who, who deals with energy management is the barbara ann brennan uh, hands of light system um, and this, the system we practice is in the same family as what she does being able to flow beams of light and and to beam them out or to or to beam them in to fill up your own energy uh, human beings are, are trained sociologically to be energy suckers we, we we do this without thinking about it we've devised over hundreds or thousands of years methods for filling our own energy by generating responses in others, like laughter, 
the person who always tell jokes, tells jokes and feeds off that energy. And we do this unconsciously on many different levels. Uh, but with a client, it's necessary to be absolutely neutral, to be objective, to not create energy soup with your energy mixing into the clients. And Michelle and I have seen this going on for 25 years since we became involved with therapies. We're quite shocked, even horrified at how few trainings, courses, workshops, and actual therapy sessions are conducted in such a, a clean, neutral energy way, particularly uh, some that, are, that could be potentially dangerous, like, dare I say, Reiki, without the whole world falling down on me, um, because Reiki practitioners are taught that once they receive their symbols, then they can just place their hands anywhere they like on a person, and abracadabra, sim, salabim, you shall be healed, and, and you are automatically protected. We don't believe in automatic protection. You are protected when you decide, using the, the tools at your disposal, whether they're mental visualization tools or whatever tools, to create actually a real clean space in which um, when you liberate toxins and toxic emotions from the client, you don't want to be absorbing them into yourself as a, as a healer, as a therapist. You know, and we've met so many wonderful healers who suffer from, you know, who have tumors and cancers and stuff because they're healing and they're doing a great job, but at their own expense. And um, Michelle and I, you know, we, we, we stay young and vital and energetic because of this whole energy management system that we use with sound. Such an important thing to include in, in your training because it is really a responsibility when, when you're doing this, this type of work. Yeah. Well, good. It is so, a responsibility, yeah. you know, yes. and you have right. to... You have to have to practice in Spain and in Europe uh, and probably in any country, you have to have a civil responsibility insurance for a million euros, you know, in case something bad happens, you know. And right now in Spain, there's a huge witch hunt. The Ministry of Health has declared uh, 120 therapies that are pseudoscience, that are hocus pocus nonsense, including tuning forks, harmonics, and hundreds of other therapies that we have come to love and trust over the last several decades. So um, we have to be careful about remaining professional at all times. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate you pointing that out as anybody approaches this work really to take it seriously. So, you know, if people want to uh, see what you're doing, I know your website is, I believe, harmonicsounds.com. Uh, for, for both yeah, you and very simple, harmonicsounds.com. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is uh, the new uh, edition is academy.harmonicsounds.com, which is now converting because of the COVID situation, we've had to adapt or die. And um, so we're adapting all our courses for, for online. And uh, a couple are up. Michelle's Free Your Voice, Heal Your Life is up there and more to follow, overtone singing, tuning forks, singing bowls. And in fact, the whole sound therapist training will be up there within a couple of months. Still, it's not the same as a live Zoom session, which I, which I encourage people to, to sign up for. 
for sure, those who are interested. And, and you are doing, starting to do some in-person uh, at the Dome, right, in, in Spain as well. So you kind of have the, the whole gamut Absolutely. of offerings. Um, <laughs> we were extremely fortunate last year that we managed to get two of our two-week presential trainings in, in August and in October in between bouts of COVID, um, but, but we had to cancel many. Um, but now we're going ahead in April, even though we're on lockdown and our, in, our, our entire uh, federal state is closed, you are allowed to travel for education and if, especially for exams that require your physical presence. So I've had to write letters to people, but we do have people flying in and who, people who live in Spain who will be coming to our training now on the 3rd till the 18th of April. So, hallelujah. Yes, absolutely. There's nothing like in person. I mean, in a way, I'm sure you've, you've perhaps stayed away from trying to put it all online uh, for a while because it is such a different experience, but it's... It's almost nice to have that option <laughs> option as well. <laughs> we were caught a bit with our trousers down, I have to say, because, we, as you say, we deliberately avoided for years making our stuff, putting our stuff online, because we wanted the people to come to us. And also there was a large part of our own belief system was like, you have to be present for this work to really assimilate into your system to integrate the work and of course you know how do you assess someone's treatment over the over zoom you know they, you need to see that your students are conducting an effective energetic sound treatment so that's quite difficult but it can be done and so we have um, submitted to circumstances and and we are very happily filming in the dome at the moment every day our various trainings in English and Spanish, in which we are both fluent, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, you know, uh, for first of all, following your own passion and your own path, because it really does come across in what you do and how mm -hmm. you express yourself. So, so thank you for, for being you and, and doing it in such an authentic way. And um, I, I just really appreciate your time and I, I look forward to connecting with your wife as, as well uh, for a future podcast. So keep doing the great work. And, and hopefully one day I can uh, be there in person with you guys in the dome. I would love that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. I'm really uh, so excited that sound therapy after two and a half decades of work, it is now really coming into the mainstream and, and, and we're delighted. And thank you so much for, for helping spread, spread the word. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been an honor just to connect with people and their, and their different perspectives and such a blossoming, exciting field. So keep up the great work and enthusiasm. Great. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Sounds Heal Podcast, sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. And keep up to date with what's coming up next at soundshealstudio.com. Check things out on Facebook at Sounds Heal Studio. And you can listen to all previous podcasts as well as music meditations on the YouTube channel at Sounds Heal Studio.
Be well and stay tuned. <laughs>